This is Sermonsmith, a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation, and my name is John Chandler. Excited to be back with you. Today, my guest is Stephanie Williams O'Brien. Stephanie is one of the founding lead pastors of Mill City Church, which is in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she also teaches preaching and ministry communication at Bethel University up there in the Twin Cities as well. So it was great to have her on. Uh, I trust you'll enjoy it. One of the things I do want to make a note of is every week when I do these interviews, or every other week or every other month on occasion, uh, you'll hear resources mentioned, links to books, links to gear, and things like that. And specifically in this one, uh, you'll hear Steph talk about a document that she's produced called the Homiletic Oath. And all of those resources, books, anytime there's a document like that, are saved and posted on the website. You, so you can come to sermonsmith.com and find the notes for that particular doc, document to download it or any show uh, that I do. A couple other notes before we get started. We did get to 60 iTunes reviews, so thank you so much. Always welcome and always appreciate those. Those help get the word out. Also, for those of you who appreciate what is going on with the podcast and want to support it and keep it going, it's patreon.com slash sermonsmith, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash sermonsmith, where you can pledge an amount per interview that we get published here to help support the costs and my time and, and that kind of thing. So thank you for those of you who are already supporting the podcast in that way. And then finally, before we get into today's interview, I just want to say that, of course, you can always share and spread the word. I've, I've been appreciating seeing an uptick in some of the Twitter mentions and Facebook mentions. So thanks for, <clears throat> excuse me, thanks everyone for spreading the word in that way. Okay, so... Uh, let's get into it with Steph Williams O'Brien from Mill City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, Steph, tell us. Let's start right off, and let's let's talk about Mill City Church. Tell us about the context where you are and and the background of your church. Yeah, absolutely. So, Mill City Church. Uh, it's named after a nickname for Minneapolis. So, not everyone from around the country knows that, but Did around not know here, that. yeah, around here in Minneapolis, a nickname for Minneapolis is the Mill City. Kind of like maybe Chicago's the Windy City or other other cities have names. So, um, and that's because the the flour mills and the sawmills and uh, that kind of work was what really started the little city of Minneapolis that grew to be what it was right there on the Mississippi River. And um, when we were looking at what it looked like to name a church, anybody who's listening to this who's been a part of that process, um, it's hard. It's hard to know how to name this thing that's been birthed that God is leading. And we felt like Mill City started to make sense because we felt like the church was called to be a group of people who loved this city in the name of Jesus. And so to give the the city's name to be our name felt like a way of starting right off with loving the city that way. And um, and also to, to represent the earliest vocations of the city and the fact that vocation and, and work is such an important thing for us. We talk a lot about that in our community and how God uses all types of vocations uh, to contribute to human flourishing. So that's where Mill City started. And it was about 10 years ago. So really excited to have our 10 year anniversary, which oh, yeah. for a church planter like me, it's kind of like, we're still here. We made it. <laughs> yeah. And that's the fall. So we're very excited about that. Um, so we're kind of a small to medium sized church. On a Sunday, we'd have about 300 or so people, so uh, more than that probably in our in our sphere. But that's that's not a huge church in the in the this area at least. And um, I'd say our community is diverse in some ways and not so much in others, but definitely increasing in diversity in almost all ways, generationally, racially, ethnically, um, social economic background. 
really seeing uh, a growth in the in our generations, which has been really exciting. We've got a lot of folks um, because we're in such an urban center. We're an urban church for sure. Um, we've got a lot of folks who are in they're kind of the career time of life. We've got plenty of young families, um, some empty nesters who I love because they're stepping into some new things in their life as well. And um, a lot of single people, I'd say an unusual amount of single people in a good way who are single a little bit later in life um, and career focused and lots of leaders. We are a, some people have said who have come to observe us um, who have helped coach us have said, this is a pretty leadership in a rich environment, which I as a pastor love, but it also makes it challenging (laughs) in certain ways. Um, But in, but in a good way. Um, But we've got a good chunk of people that I use the term. And actually I've heard others that you've interviewed on this podcast say this, so I don't know what this says about you that you got people with the similar draw the similar type of people, but the kind of the de-churched, rechurched folks, like the ones yeah. who are kind of I, I've noticed that theme in some of your interviewer interviewees, um, people who are giving the church maybe its last chance, um, maybe have been a part of the church for a while growing up, and for whatever reason, sometimes really painful reasons have stepped away, and then uh, feel drawn I think to our mission to love our community in the name of Jesus. And see how they could be a part of that, and see the the role that they could play. Uh, we're a very equipping focused church. Um, we we say that our vision is to reproduce communities of missional disciples. So that means a lot of leadership development, discipleship, equipping, um, lots of training. Our group life is focused around missional communities, um, people who listen and respond to God together. So we. We talk a lot about listening and being able to listen for God's voice and looking and looking for God's movement. But then again, it's not a contemplative uh, stopping point. It's an action-oriented response. How do we respond to what we see God doing? How do we respond to what we hear God saying and join in to, to the work of Jesus in our neighborhood? Yeah, and I, I mean, I picked that up uh, picking around on your website earlier, which is, you know, you have a heading on your website called training, which I don't know that I've seen that in a church before. Uh, mm-hmm. Just you know, speaking to everything that you were just talking about, just it seems like there's a lot of focus on equipping people for mission and vocation and uh, whatever other words that we might want to put alongside that. So yeah, that in mind, I'm curious, you know, and so I'll just say there's a big emphasis in what you're doing in the lives of people even beyond Sunday morning. So what role does the sermon play in the life of that and in the rhythm of the church? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I think we'll always ask in some ways, right? Like let's just, just continue to ask what is the focus of the point, the focus, the the meaning and role of this 25 minute, although if it's my sermon, I'll be honest, 35 minute um, <laughs> <laughs> conversation on a Sunday. Um, and I, I think it, at the core for us, it is equipping. So you're going to hear us speak to people as though they are, are such that are, these are people who are on mission or, um, could at least consider that they might be and that they're going to need resources and tools and uh, ways of thinking, ways of acting and and practices. They're going to need those things if they're going to be able to join God's mission. And so we talk to them through, of course, very, you know, we're very committed to scripture. So through a biblical lens saying, what, what does scripture have to teach us about how humans interact with God and respond to God, which is what this big big God story as we talk with our kids are with the meta narrative is about and how we respond. And there's a lot of humans in that story that responded well and a lot that did not. And a lot that's, you know, a mixed mixed bag. And so how do we choose to respond and what tools and resources do we need to be able to do that? And so 
I'd say it's equipping in that sense. You know, the training aspect of our church is not so much on Sunday morning, although we have done training Sundays, we call them, where there's actually multiple spaces for people to go when we would normally have a, a sermon time. But oh, we, we've we've mostly moved that to a nine o'clock equipping hour that we have before. And people say, is this just Sunday school? It's right before the worship. And we said, no, you know, that's it's, honestly, it is an equipping hour. It's a time frame where we're going to cover topics that are going to help you live on mission. And we would hope the sermon would be that same that same reality, except that, of course, pract- it's not as practical in the sense that we're going to workshop and have conversations when there's 300 people in the room. Um, but we do sometimes ask people to talk to someone next to them. And then, of course, there is that visionary aspect, too. It's an opportunity for missional inspiration is maybe what I would say. I want people's missional imagination to be woken up about what it might look like for them to participate with God. And so um, the, the sermon, I think, can really offer that as well, that space for missional imagination for folks. And and then, of course, um, if people are going to join God on mission, there's going to be barriers to that in your life. And so some of the role of preaching and, of course, pastoral care and, and equipping in other ways, too, is helping people overcome those barriers so that they can be full participants with what God's doing in the world and their neighborhoods and workplaces and in the places that they, I always say, in their everyday spaces where they live and work and play and learn. God's equipping us for those places. But there's barriers, obviously, to that. Um, broken relationships, illness, spiritual walls that people hit. And so how can we use the sermon to be a, a spot to encourage them and uh, let them know there is hope beyond some of those things? To And the hope isn't just that you'd go back to an ease of life, but that you'd be freed up to be able to join in what God's doing in the world and to relate to Jesus, not only as a, a moral being person that we try to live up to his lifestyle, but actually in a relationship where he might speak to you every day and invite you into things that you'd never would have expected if you weren't listening. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Uh, Talk a little bit about the formation. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of roll two questions into one here and I I don't know if it'll work or not. So (laughs) maybe maybe they go together. Um, I I often, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by how, a little more of the history of your church that, you know, you and Michael and Michael's name is so familiar with me. I wonder if I must've met him at some point, but yeah, he's connected with some of the same folks that we know. Okay. Yeah, Michael Bender. So he's the co-lead pastor. So the two of us, uh, both, I met him and his wife when I was in seminary. And then the two of us both had a similar vision for church planting. And a part of the vision was team leadership. And so okay. that's what really solidified that God must been, must've been calling the two of us together since we both had that vision. And then, um, stepped into that uh, right around the same time, so that that's where that where the beginning of the story was. Yeah, and, and so th- what I was going to try to bundle with that <laughs> was your own story. As I often, when I interview women, you know, I often mm-hmm. like to hear how did they find opportunities and how did they discover that they had a giftedness for for preaching? Because you know those opportunities aren't aren't as often. So so not only did you find that and you found you had that voice and decided to pursue it, and but then you know, found someone to, to partner with and planning a church together. I'd just be curious to hear what your backstory is there. Yeah, no, yeah, I'd love to share that. Um, well, uh, let me first share an observation. So I, I get a chance to teach preaching and then at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. And then I also took a lot of preaching classes in seminary. And about the time I was in seminary, the credit levels for MDivs were high enough that we could choose from a lot of electives, which is a little bit different now um, for MDivs kind of across the board. But I took so many preaching classes and I've now teach preaching and I've checked this with other uh, homiletics professors and almost, almost every time you see in a class, the women come to the class 
assuming that they are not called to preach and they just have to take this class <laughs> and uh-huh. the men come assuming that they are supposed to preach and they are called to preach and they're here to get better at it. And, um, I always think, you know, some of both of them are wrong. <laughs> you know uh-huh. what I mean? Yeah. Not yeah. everybody is called and gifted. And some of those women absolutely are. And they, they're, you know, th- certainly there's exceptions to both, but uh, some of those women absolutely are, but there's this assumption that there there needs to be something very clear that says that they are, or they're going to shy away from it. Um, and I think we're seeing that change, but that certainly was my experience with a lot of the women that I took classes with. And then a lot of the men are coming saying, well, I must figure out how to do this. And some of them feel so defeated because it really isn't a natural gifting for them. And that should be okay, you know, but in the yeah. seminary environment, it often feels such. So I think for me, I, I do think I assumed that even after I felt a call to ministry, and didn't know exactly what that looked like. I would say there was two assumptions that I had that probably did come to a sense of core connection to my gender. And that was that even though I felt called to ministry, it was probably a parachurch ministry. And then second, that it wasn't, it was maybe about teaching or public speaking, but but probably not preaching. And that was a pretty kind of underlying thing that I believed that I didn't even realize I believed. Um, I think a phrase that, that I often quote, um, I forget who said it, you can't be what you can't see. My friend right. Joe Saxon says that too. And I had not seen women preach. I think the first time I saw a woman preach in real life was when I was in college. And I had not seen women pastors, especially ones who had my personality type, which is much more of an apostolic, you know, making sense for church planting, strategic activator, go for it, um, that kind of person. And I think in general, we see pastors being more shepherding and teaching, which is wonderful. But I didn't see myself in those folks, much less women who were doing that. And so there was so many assumptions I brought into that. And so it's, it actually was a, another female pastor who was a campus pastor at the time when I was in college who encouraged me right after college. She said, you're going to preach at the college chapel. And I said, oh yeah, someday. She said, oh no, next week. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm definitely not doing that. And then she pulled out the the calendar, the posters that were going up on campus as we spoke and my name was already on it. So um, she actually like literally tricked me into giving my first, what I would say, my first real sermon in front of 1500 people, which I don't recommend to be your first audience. Um, But she knew me really well and she knew what it would take for me to to wrap my head around this gifting. And she believed that it was there. Although I think that was a little bit on faith because she hadn't heard me preach. Um, But I got to tell you, I was, I was super nervous, but that day I woke up and had kind of that conversation with Jesus about what I'm, what am I here for? What am I doing? And I've really felt like God said to me, if you believe that I made you to do this, then you might be nervous, but you're going to have to trust me with this. And so I went for it. I have no, it was a total blur. I'm sure most people would say about their first sermon. And, um, but I walked off that stage and I thought, I have no idea what I just did, but I have never felt more created to do something so specific in my life. Hmm. And I better figure out what I'm doing. <laughs> so that was yeah, my third yeah. Learn how to do this, um, and so then uh, I just I, honestly I just kept looking for those opportunities, and um, it wasn't too much longer after that moment. Actually, I'd already been in seminary when that happened. It wasn't too much longer after that that I met Michael and his wife, and they were starting up talking about church planting, and um, and then he said right away, um, and I give him a lot of credit for this too. So that woman that tricked me into my first sermon, uh, <laughs> Pastor Sherry Mortensen, shout out to her for tricking me. And then to my co-pastor, Michael, who who very much felt called to and still does creating space for women to lead and to preach and to teach. And uh, his sister's an excellent preacher. And so he knew he knew that to lead the church well, he needed to have diverse voices from the beginning. So we've always had 
teams of, of people teaching, not just the two of us, but us two being the primary teachers and the benefit of having um, both a woman and a man has been really great. So I know that for a lot of my female colleagues, it hasn't been that easy of a road to be able to have some spaces to even grow in this opportunity. And so it is a passion of mine to help other women create, find those spaces to do that. But I do give Michael a ton of credit because he's the kind of person that could have said, I'm going to be the the kind of Lone Ranger, Lone Ranger church planter guy. And um, he didn't need to, to listen to that calling. I really think it was God leading him to that team leadership, just like it was for me. But yeah, so then we both had that vision for church planting, urban church planting with team leadership. And we felt like we were we were joining in something that God was already doing. I'll be completely honest. God wanted there to be a new church in Northeast Minneapolis where we are. And um, I think that, that, that God's the one that gave us that vision and has led us through. We've been able to help encourage and equip a few other churches to begin by people joining in what God's doing. And we hope to keep doing that, help start new congregations. And uh, now in 10 years, I don't know if I still call it a church plant, but um, at some point, you're not a church plant anymore. We worship in a school still, and we plan on worshiping in that school lo- as long as God has us there. So um, sometimes people say it's not a church plant once you're not in a, a space you're renting anymore. But I'm sure you can imagine that's not necessarily the where that changes. And so that's where that's how we got to this place now. And I, um, it's I, I love seeing new churches birthed. Our church is very ecumenical in the sense that we want to partner with churches that already exist and help start new ones. And together we're the church um, in in the city. So we say there's the, there's one church in Northeast Minneapolis, and ours meets at ten o'clock at, at Sheridan School. Right. <laughs> so right. Right. A real real focus of our heart. And so I'm going to ask this question just in tension with everything you just said. Not really, but <laughs> but just, <laughs> just just a quick one though. But for just for the sake of context, for your own story and for the church now, is there any kind of denominational tradition or heritage that you came out of or that Mill City is part of now? Yeah, so we're connected with a couple different groups, but um, I, came, I came out of the Covenant denomination. Okay. And so um, the Covenant denomination has been ordaining women for over 40 years now. And so in my specific Covenant church that I grew up in, there was a, a definite support for women in ministry at any level. But at the time, the pastor, the senior pastor, the one pastor was a male. And so that's why I didn't see preaching of, of females in that time. And and uh, actually, something really cool that the covenant denomination has been doing over this last year is what they call four more. I don't know if anybody's brought this up, no. but four more is a, a movement uh, for men who sp- particularly, I mean, it's still probably true that most pulpits are filled by men most of the time. Um, and so it's a movement for men and, and in a lot of ways, encouraged by other men to have four more spaces for women to preach in their pulpit this year and uh, every year to try to have four more, four more. And um, I just think that's so neat. And I think that speaks to the heart that that denomination has um, for continuing to create space for women to lead where um, the covenant is still growing in this area and has been ordaining in lots of women, like I said, but of course still low numbers of female church planters, low numbers of female senior pastors, and so I, th- I think that's a great uh, evidence of that movement and, and, I, and God's leading that for sure too. Um, and our church is also connected with, so, so I'm, I'm a ordained covenant pastor, but I serve my church as, which is a converge has a, the denomination converge, um, which yeah. is, yeah, which is connected to Bethel, which is where I work Bethel seminary. So we're kind of um, dual citizens a little bit. Um, our church overall is, is a part of converge. I'm part of covenant. We've helped, we've helped start two covenant churches and plan to continue to do that. Um, we're, so we're a little, like I said, we're ecumenical. 
Um, and we, we love connecting with the wider body, but also see the benefits of kind of inter interconnecting across denominations in those ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great. So looking at, looking at what you do Sundays, just looking through, I mean, it looks like you guys mostly do some kind of topical or thematic series. So I'm curious what your planning process looks like with team leadership in terms of determining what to preach. And then the one I'm always fascinated by when it's a scenario like you have there is determining who preaches on what. I'm always fascinated by that question. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure. And you've had some other people on who have teaching teams and I'm, I'm a huge fan. I love having teaching teams for so many reasons from the beginning of the process till the end. Um, When people ask me about if their church should move to a team teaching, I always say go slowly because if people are used to hearing the same voice, that can be difficult. But since we started that way, uh, it's really been a benefit to our community. And so, yeah, the teaching team, we, we call it the teaching team, uh, is made up of the people who preach and also any interns that we have who are pastoral interns so that they're a part of watching that process go. And we meet every week. And the first question that we ask every week is something to the effect of either what did we feel like God was doing on Sunday morning um, through the teaching and the worship? Um, or what do we think? This is an interesting question. How do we think Jesus felt about ex- the experience we had on Sunday morning? <laughs> <laughs> which is a really interesting question. And so we try to start with that because of course, then we get into the how to go last week. Yeah. What's the preparation for next week um, and some of that stuff. And uh, Michael's the one that really said, we need to ask these questions. And so we have for years now asked what, what was God doing in there? What do we think we saw God doing in, in people and in ourselves? And um, so, so then we spend the rest of the meeting talking about the kind of future series. And yeah, we do topical series. We think a lot about how, to the best of our ability, we can preach from all parts of scripture. We really value that. Um, and we try to, I would say there's an intentional move to e- express what part of the meta narrative we're preaching from any given week and uh, looking back and in order to look forward type thing and talking about the big story. But um, I'd say that the number one way that we discover what those topics should be and even what scriptures, I mean, we have done series where it's you know, the whole book of Ezekiel or something like that. We have done that in the past or a series that might look like a topic on the surface, but it is following through a whole chunk of Matthew or something like that. But I'd say that the the number one way is listening. We really try to listen to what God is doing in our community. In fact, I I didn't say this before, but when I think about what one of the roles of preaching in our community is to be the people who do the meaning making of what God is doing through these people. So- there's so much happening and we hear so much, of course, especially with a team, you hear even more, right? Because we're in these conversations. There's lots of ways that people give f- feedback. I'm always thinking we need better feedback loops, but there's lots of ways we hear what God's doing in people's lives. And the role I think of pastors is to be the ones who make meaning from that, make kingdom meaning from that. What is So I hear all of these things that God's doing in your lives. And so let's make some meaning from that in order for us to live out of that meaning and what that means and respond then. And so when we're in those teaching teams, we're thinking about, well, what, what is God surfacing in these people? And um, what have we heard? What do we see happening in their lives? Not merely to have like a reaction or something to what's happening in their life as much as a, a, a genuine sense of, is there something we can hear from God in all of this that we need to focus on? And um, I'll be honest, sometimes that means that the answer to that question comes in what feels a little bit like the 11th hour. <laughs> and I've said this so many times in our team, whenever it feels like we are struggling to figure out what that next conversation is, 
it always ends up being just right at the heart of where people are at. And it, I think it's in those times we really trusted that God was going to give us the, the answer to that. And it usually is kind of right under our noses with the team discussions. But um, yeah, it's just been a really, really good to try to do that sense of listening. And, and other times we just think, okay, but what, what parts of scripture haven't we really hit on? And is there a way that we can dive deeper into the prophets or dive deeper into the Old Testament or the letters? And, and sometimes that has driven it to some extent, for sure, too. So um, that's really what that looks like. So then we hope, I mean, our, ideally, we're about two months out in where we know the series are going. So right now we know everything for June, you know, as the time we're having this conversation, it's May. Yeah. And so we've got everything planned out for June, a good chunk of July. And then we have some ideas even for the fall, but we hold it loosely because we know that God can do a lot of stuff in the, in the midst of uh, this year. And then I'd say there's a few things that we try to hit on every year. We try to do a series every year on faith and work, and how to integrate your faith with your work. Um, that's been a really important thing for us to intentionally focus on. And then secondly, we have really tried over the last, I'd say, four or five years to do an intentional conversation around racial justice and um, what it looks like to have unity and diversity. That's been a, a, a p- important, we, we always want to try to find the right season in any year to talk about that. And we've been doing that before. It was something that was in the news in the way it is now. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that, you kind of have these things. We're going to go for this. And then, and then there's actually, there's a third one. And then how to engage what God's doing in your neighborhood is also one that comes up almost every year. And oftentimes in the summer, as you can imagine, because in Minnesota, <laughs> what God's doing in your neighborhood hibernates a little bit in the winter. Yes. <laughs> I don't think God hibernates, but the ability to see that feels like a hibernation. <laughs> we, we lived in Seattle for three years and we literally would not see our neighbor. You know, we live 30 minutes north of downtown and we literally would not see our neighbors from like October to May because <laughs> they would they would be out before the sun came up and they would drive in their garage well after the sun came down. So, yeah, I know what it's like to live in the north. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, that's those are the things. But then I'd say when it comes to picking who, um, we start with a little bit of a sense of, is there anything, once we've got this series planned out, um, so we're doing a series, this next one is really focusing on our image of God. It's called Picturing God. And recognizing that most of us are the are, are going to have because of various reasons, including I think an enemy that we that lies and wants to steal and kill and destroy, we have inaccurate pictures of who God is, and um, and then also just because we're humans and we can't have a, a, a perfect picture. So, what is it? The question of the series is: What does it look like to have a more full and true picture of who God is in this season of our life? And so, as we thought about that, we thought, okay, who of our team? who doesn't maybe preach as regularly would be great to teach on that. So one of our, one of our congregation members, Ramon is going to do an excellent sermon that on his re-understanding his own story, but about the Holy spirit and kind of a rediscovery of the Holy spirit. And so we invited him to join the team for that. But then we think about the rest of us and is there anything that we feel really called to, especially if there's a topic each week, that's different, how, who feels drawn to this or that. Um, but also Michael and I do try to make sure that we're still the, the two voices that are heard the most for the sake of stability, I think, and consistency. Um, but you know, if you look through our website, you'll see the variance where we do have some weeks, some months where each of us are only up once. Um, we try to create space for people who are learning to preach, to have some opportunities to preach too. So, um, for the most part, it's kind of which ones does Stephanie want to preach? Which ones does Michael want to preach? And then what opportunities for other people or 
this sermon that we just came up with as a team would be excellent for this intern even to give or for this other person on our team um, to give. And uh, especially when we're trying to think of something like, like the image of God, for instance, how great to hear from multiple voices on that so that we can have them. If they, if the goal is to have a more full picture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Is there, is there a ballpark amount that you and Michael try to make sure that you preach like, between the two of you, two thirds of the time or 50% of the time or anything like that, or not necessarily? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. We try to have the amount that him and I preach be close to 50, 50, as far as the, t- the one, the sermons that we're splitting. So I'd say the two of us probably split around two thirds of the preaching. And then yeah. we've got others preaching about a third. If I had to guess, I guess I haven't looked at the numbers, but that, that'd be my guess is that him and I are splitting about two thirds. And then we have a third that are, um, part of our team. And we do intentionally bring in uh, specific people to preach that represent different backgrounds and different ethnic backgrounds, especially. And for us, it's really important that those are folks that we're in relationship with people that we trust and who trust us and don't feel like we're asking them to come to represent their entire race or something like right. that. But, um, yeah. but of course we're thinking how can, if we're going to disciple people well, they need to hear from people who have lots of different backgrounds. And so our team only has so many of those backgrounds. So um, for instance, age, we have a man on our teaching team who um, actually used to, I mean, he's been, he was a pastor for years. He's retired now. He's in his seventies. His name's Leland Elias. And if anybody out there knows him and he, he led at the seminary for a long time here in Bethel, but he comes and teaches and man, is it refreshing for our folks to hear from somebody in their seventies sometimes, you know, it's wonderful. And so that's been an intentional invitation for us too to ask him to, to come out of retirement and to, to preach. And he's a part of our, part of our church. That sounds marvelous because I'm 47 and I'm often the sage at, uh, at our church. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a little nerve wracking when, when people in our thirties and forties are the sages around right. here. We gotta, we gotta make sure we're hearing from the whole church. Yeah. I'm, I'm not nearly as wise at 47 as I thought 47 year olds were when I was younger. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Isn't that something? Yes. I well, I, yeah, I love it. I call it generational, uh, having generational diversity, there you, go. <laughs> you know, cause we got to be intentional about that. I think it's super important. Let's hear from our young people. Let's hear from our kids. Let's make sure the kids aren't only to be seen and not heard because they're, they're an important part of our church. And uh, anytime we're without realizing it, marginalizing, even those types of groups, we need to really think about what that means for the fact that we might want to be inter, you know, wanting to be making connections across race and ethnicity, man, if we can't even, make friends across life stage, we are in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, we've wrestled with that one a lot too. Mm. So uh, we're going to detour, which sure. this isn't a surprise to you. It's surprised everybody else, but that's okay. They'll be, they'll be all right. Um, I'm probably <laughs> the one who's most neurotic about having my rhythms be the same. So I'll survive this. Stay with us, everybody. <laughs> um, Dark turn. You sent me last week uh, this document that you've put together called the Homiletic Oath. And mm-hmm. the, the reason I thought it'd be good to detour with this is because in some ways, what you have here speaks to preparation and it speaks to evaluation, which are two things I always ask about preparation. I often run out of time to ask about evaluation. Uh, but this kind of okay. this kind of serves that purpose. So. I think as best as we can, um, and, and I'll say right now that uh, I assume I have your permission to post this, you know, on the website oh, yeah. alongside with Absolutely. alongside this conversation. So this will be available Absolutely. there. But why don't you tell us uh, the genesis of this, and then to the degree that you feel like we can talk through it. I don't know if you feel like you can 
talk through each one of these, or if there's a few that you feel like have become especially poignant, uh, we can talk through them. I have a couple that I, yeah, are my favorites for sure. Okay. Yeah. So the homiletic oath, um, just, it's a play on words with the Hippocratic oath that, um, doctors take. And, uh, I, I, I admit that I don't know a lot about, um, the way that doctors are prepared and trained, except for having dated a doctor once in my past life. Um, so besides that, <laughs> I don't really know, but I know that there's this idea that the Hippocratic Oath is the way in which, and they, people often say, in, in the way in which doctors are going to be able to serve the best and also do no harm. And I think the reality for sermons is that sermons have been some of the most meaningful and ways that people can serve. I mean, I genuinely see it as a service it's been some of the the most impactful in a positive way in people's lives, but it can also be some of the places of the most pain and the most um, suffering and also confusion and feeling as though they're led away from who God is. And so I think that's why we need to take it seriously. I, I personally don't believe that being a, a pastor or a preacher is a higher calling than any other vocation that God has placed on any of our lives. And I think it's a mistake to consistently reinforce that. But I would hope everybody would take their calling seriously and say, what does it mean to be people who live into that calling for the sake of other people? And so I think, of course, because of the fact that that sermons can be such a huge spectrum of helpful to hurtful, um, what does it look like to, to, to do no harm in yeah. the same way that that doctors might consider. And so um, it's also part of the way that it was that I ended up coming to have it is, is teaching preaching and saying, okay, I just did a fire hydrant course in a lot of seminaries. There's only one or two preaching classes these days. And so here's your fire hydrant of, of topics and conversation about what it looks like to be a good preacher. And so I thought that pulling this together was a way for me to kind of synthesize a lot of the things that we talked about in class and to allow a, a space for the students and also for myself to be able to just go through and say, this is what I've committed to, to do to the best of my ability. So I started with, I swear to fulfill to the best of my ability and judgment, this covenant. And I, I threw the word covenant in there. I'm not sure if that's in the Hippocratic oath, but <laughs> I know us Christians gotta be careful about oaths, you know? Sure. That works. <laughs> that feels safe. That feels safe. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, but a covenant with God and with, with the people that God's called you to serve. And then just, they all start with, I will, I will commit, I will, I will do this. And so I, I was hoping, and it has been this way for me, and a couple of my students have said that they've framed it and put it in their office to remind them to talk through what their commitment is, no matter what topic they're preaching on, no matter what audience they're speaking to, that these are the things that they'd focus on. So um, for instance, the first one is, I will live my life with a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit to speak to me through scripture, my life experiences, and my relationships. So just this starting place that it's not uh, in our idea chambers that we come up with the best information. It's really in the relationship we have with the Holy Spirit, speaking through the scripture and through the things that we experience in life. Um, So it kind of goes through some different things. One of them that I would point out is the one that says, I will elevate the action and agency of God as the main character of the Bible Hmm. and treat all supporting characters in scripture as mere humans interacting with a God who pursues them and invites them to respond. So my, my students would, would know that this is a little bit of a pet pet topic for me because I feel uh, just that there's been a, a real pull to elevating biblical characters as though they're the moral of the story rather than God's agency being the main point. And so whenever there's something that even comes across a little bit like uh, 10 ways to be like David, I just feel <laughs> it just, it bugs me because I want it to be 10 ways to be like God or 10 ways to respond to God. Um, I think it's easy for us to to forget 
God's agency in the story, meaning God is the primary actor and everybody else is a supporting character. And that's what makes it difficult for us to see God as the main character in our own lives and that we are supporting actors and supporting characters to the the story that God is telling. And our story is a subplot in this larger narrative. And um, so that's a little bit of a, a pet one for me, but my students I'm sure smile when they first read that I'll elevate the action and agency of God as the main character of the Bible. Cause they've heard me say that so many times. And it seems obvious in a, in a way when you say the statement, but I'm just, it doesn't seem obvious to me all the time when I hear sermons yeah, that, yeah. that God is the main of scripture. So that's one of them. Um, and then just some stuff about contextualizing and, and recognizing I'll, I'll read that next one. I will commit to love people by paying attention to their lives, their cultural backgrounds, their hopes, wounds, and daily experiences when interpreting the meaning of the text and its application to our lives today. So to me, that doesn't mean let's make the text say something so it doesn't hurt someone's feelings. Uh, For instance, when I put the word wounds in there, to me, what that means is if I'm going to give a sermon about fear and I'm going to talk about how, what's that classic line? God says, do not fear 365 times in the Bible, one for every day. I always hear that quote. I had never counted, so I'm not sure if that's right. Um, But when you're going to give a sermon on fear, which is an important topic, especially in a highly anxious time like I think we're living in now, uh, a way to pay attention to people's wounds would be to to make sure you just mention that you're not talking about people who suffer from chronic anxiety and who might need to seek help. And uh, for me, making sure that we pay attention to the fact that there's folks in the room who... uh, just taking courage like Joshua did, you know, is not where they're at. They they do need some more support and that we, we, we love them and we celebrate their steps towards that healing. And we celebrate all healing as God's healing, whether it comes through therapists or medication and just that the, the, the pulpit has been a place that has left some of that out and not mentioned that, uh, those kinds of things. And I don't think it's because people have tried most of the time to intentionally hurt anybody, but it's a lack of really, loving people by paying attention to their life. Mm-hmm. And you can do that to the best of your ability and it's still, you still won't do it perfectly. But, but what about a commitment to doing the best you can to that? I think really, really goes a long way in that kind of contextualizing the gospel and contextualizing the, the story and the text to their lives. Uh, you can't, uh, the gospel has always been translated. And so you have to know who you're speaking to in order to know what language, quote unquote, to speak to them with. So I think that paying attention in that way. So, so yeah, so that's, that's an example of, of some of them, uh, the commitments that I'm hoping that I would always make and that my students would, would seek to make as they step out in, in their preaching. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I told you this before, but um, I, I just think this is a gem of a document and what stands out to me about it is, and you kind of alluded to this when we were talking before we started recording, but because you use this with your uh, students, what I, what I like about this is it's broad enough that it can be used by anybody from almost any background. You know, there might be some some people from some denominational backgrounds that might have a little variance with some of these things and it might not work as well, <laughs> you know, just depending on how they view yeah, scripture. Sure. Um, but for but I think it's it's broad enough. But then there's also some particular particularity uh, that it feels mm-hmm. like it's for any person who's doing their own sermon prep and evaluating their sermons, you know, there's some actionable stuff in here that they can use to evaluate it. How, how often, you know, you, you made the comment about similar to how a doctor might put it on their wall or some of your students. How often have you mm-hmm. um, found yourself needing to, or wanting to maybe go back through and, and look at this and see, 
you know, for even on a sermon by sermon basis or, you know, just to evaluate how well you're doing with some of these? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And and to be fair, I have said to everybody who's read it, feel free to add what makes sense to you. Sure. You know, this is a working, I'm giving permission for it to be a working document to anybody who might come on your site to grab it too. But um, honestly, this is, I, I really only put this all down in one place in the last year. Okay. And, uh, and so what I realized is that I was having this desire to do that at moments in my sermon prep. And I didn't have one place that I had put all of that. And what I would realize is, that certain uh, certain bullet points from this are the things that would really help me get back and get grounded to where I was at. So, for instance, you know, when you're in the very beginning of a sermon prep and you're thinking about the the big idea and what you're hoping people are going to think and feel and do and all that, um, there's certain things that if if I were to be pointed back to this, I think it would really help me. If that's feeling like at times that feels a little overwhelming and other times you start the sermon prep and you are, you know exactly what your big idea is and you just need to get down into the details. And it's there that you feel a little bit lost. What am I doing here again? What am I trying to commit to? And, uh, and then sometimes it's in that final draft. Let's just go through and say, what is there? Am I missing anything here? Is there something that I might not be paying attention to about what I'm committing to as a preacher? And so these are the things that I've tried to think through and have struggled because they haven't been put down. And that's really why I wrote them down over this last year. And I got some other people's opinions about it too, and just said, we need to start putting this down. And maybe a couple of years from now, I'll have changed it a little bit. Or like I said, encourage other people to add what makes sense to them, maybe what questions they need to ask themselves. So I have a feeling that it's going to be something that uh, I continue to use now that it's written down in one place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just going to pick my favorite. Can I do that? It's your it's your oath, but I'm yeah. going to comment. I don't know if this is my favorite, but one that jumps out for me. I was going to actually say, I was going to actually ask you to tell me which one you like. Um, yeah, I mean, the one I like is, I will engage the mind of the listener by evoking intellectual curiosity about God, humanity, and the world God loves. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've often been, uh, one of my, and I didn't even start to name this until we were a few years into our church, but realized Oh, yeah. One of my driving values is just to have some kind of intellectual honesty in the context of our sermon. You know, even as simple as being able to name some of you in the room today might only believe in a literal seven day creation. And some of you might believe that's all mythology and just to be able to hold those together, you know, so an intellectual honesty. So even being able to name, you know, the intellect, which so oftentimes is seen in tension with the spirit or seeing intention with religion, being able to name that that's actually a really critical and valuable part of what our sermons is, especially as we're in more urban centers. My understanding of Minneapolis is it shares a lot with Austin in terms of it's kind of a creative class, you know, pretty well educated yes, yeah. city and man, you got to engage with the, that. So I love seeing that one on there. Personally. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think when I think about intellectual curiosity, it's uh, in part, it's a sense of acknowledging that there's questions that maybe don't have clear answers, or, you know, maybe what you feel like your answer is, but giving that back to people, I th- sometimes we say, give the problem back to somebody, and let them take that with them. And then also just that sense of humility of we don't have all the answers, and we don't know everything. And then I think finally, um, sometimes in my sermons, I'll have a little segment that I call seminary for everybody. And it's where I really like just break down something really in depth. And I I call it that. And I say to everybody, I'm doing this with you because I I think you can do this yourself. You can take this, what you're learning in this little two minute thing and take that into your own understanding of scripture. And I'm doing that to kind of stoke that curiosity. Like you don't have to wait until you get a download from somebody with the title pastor to just to dig into what God might be seeing through this. 
and and even and know that even if you do that, you don't have to come out with a clear answer because when you do the quote unquote seminary for everybody, it opens up the complexity of translating scripture and contextualizing it. And that's, I think, so good for people to see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. As I said, this will be, this will be posted. And for anybody, I think this is worth downloading even just to, like you say, maybe, maybe wrestle with it and tackle it for your own or your own context, but certainly it's a helpful evaluation tool if nothing else. So um, I'd love for people to share it. Totally, uh, totally free. I want everyone to have it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you a selfish question, and then we'll start winding down here. Uh, it's okay. a selfish question. It's not really a selfish question, but it comes out of my, my own experience, which is, um, you know, we we have two women on our leadership team who we try to work in our preaching rotation pretty regularly, and we've invited uh, a few other women from our church. Even this past Sunday, we had an intern who preached for her first time. And yeah. just did did a great job from everything I understand. I was preaching elsewhere, but I've heard nothing but good. And uh, but one of the things that I've tried to learn is what is it like as or one of the things they've. It might be more fair to say one of the things that they've tried to help me learn is mm-hmm. what is it yeah. what is helpful and not helpful for men who are trying to give voice to women who preach and to offer critique. And I, I, I say this mm-hmm. because obviously you are you have this experience now as a woman who's preached, but even in the classroom with your students, uh, I'm curious, I, I don't even know what the question I'm asking is, other than I, I'm definitely aware that sometimes when I'm offering critique, um, sometimes it's helpful critique and sometimes it's not helpful critique for what they've experienced or what they've offered as a woman. Yeah. No, I think I think I know where you're coming from on that. So the, you're, you're kind of saying, what does it look like to help these women become the best preachers that they can be, while not uh, allowing any gender bias to be an unfair critique or even be perceived as something like that? Sure. And that's a great question. And the fact that you're even asking that is a great place to start. I think. Um, and so, I mean, I guess can I say what I would say to the men, and then what I'd say yeah. to the women who might be listening to this? So, I think to the men, I would just say, you know. First of all, if you are considering what it looks like to create space for women's voices, keep doing it. Keep stepping towards that. And don't be afraid of the things that could get hard in it, like what you're just describing. And then secondly, I would say, um, ask for consent. Uh, so <laughs> that seems like a, a word that we're using a lot to help us understand how to live well together as men and women. But ask for consent. Can I give you feedback on that sermon? Is it okay if we talk about some critiques in which I think you could do better? Is this a good time to talk about that right now? And give them a sense of some space to do that. And there's something really powerful about somebody being able to say, yes, I'd like to hear that. Or no, could we wait? Or just something like that. Or even a sense of, can I? do you want me to be somebody who uh, pushes you to grow as a preacher? Because if so, it probably means I'm going to come with some critiques. And I want to give you the best opportunity to grow um, that kind of conversation. And when men have said that to me or other women have said that to me, that's really meant a lot. Because... I know that it's impossible to take all bias out of our out of our vocabulary and out, out of our minds. It's literally, I think, impossible, yeah. but it's always something we can grow in. And I do believe that if men men and women hold back from from giving constructive criticism to women preachers or leaders, then it is going to keep women from thriving in their leadership as much as possible and as much as men, for instance, because I do think that the that lots of men earlier in their life are pushed and challenged and given critique that helped them grow. And one of the reasons some women I think are behind in that, uh, in some of their skills is because of that lack of, of intentional support, but also challenge. Yeah. 
And so that's what I would say to the men is that we do need to hear that. We do need to to have those safe spaces, but make sure it's a safe space. Make sure that the woman has a, has said that it's a safe space. Maybe you need to ask a few times, um, depending on that person. Pay attention to who they are. Are they more of a more sensitive person? Because of course, plenty of men are sensitive as well. Yeah. And I've seen yeah. I've seen many a man crumble under some not so well delivered sermon critique, and that's not anything to say about who he is. It's you know I, I think sensitive men are fantastic, and we need men who are sensitive, just like we need women to see their strengths. And I think all of us have our sensitivities and our strengths and uh, we can encourage each other to live in the, to them. I think that's what that co-laboring between men and women can really look like is pulling out the fullness of who we are, each other is. So that's what I would say to the men is that um, it's kind of the proceed with caution, but please proceed. Yeah. Do not hold back. We need you to to continue to create those, four, like the, the covenant church doing that for more that's huge. I told some people I'm, I might let four more men speak this year. We'll see, but um, and I'm just teasing, of course. But I think I mean, yeah, you have to you have to keep keep on. And we are so I, we are so appreciative as a woman. I'll say many of us have talked about how appreciative we are for the men who have been willing to stick their foot in the door for us, so that we can walk through. And I think that's huge. Um, but to the women, I would say you're going to need to give people the permission to cr- give you critique. You need to tell them, I want you to, to tell me what you really think. I need you to tell me, even if it hurts my feelings a little bit, <laughs> and you might see that in my facial expression, but I need you to tell me because I really want to be the best at this, whether that's preaching or leading or anything else. Um, there's some conversations I've had with some men where I've had to say, listen, don't take this the wrong way, but I- I'm not totally sure you're telling me what you would say if I was a man, and I'm not a man, but I want you to tell me the same things the same level of intensity and and challenge that you would if I was a man. And I'm going to do my best to assume that it isn't because of my gender that you're offering that. Now, I wouldn't tell all men that, or even maybe most, but the ones that I trust and I really value their opinion and know they're the ones who are going to help me grow in the different areas I need to grow as a preacher or otherwise, I, I think we need to give them that permission, especially now as there's more and more just kind of that wondering how do we relate well together because of the the Me Too movement and some of these things. This is really good that this stuff is coming to the surface, but we can't allow it to sh- to cause us to shrink back. We need to st- to lean into it and step towards it. I think, and I think the church is a great place to be an example of what it looks like to co labor as people who are made in the image of God. But of course, that isn't always the case, and and there's the hashtag church too and all that yeah, stuff. And yeah. so, I love being a part of of communities that are trying to step forward as saying we we honor each other, we serve each other, we elevate each other. and But part of that is to critique in a good way to help people grow. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thanks thanks for making a question out of my wonderings. <laughs> Not for well, yeah, it's, response. It's, um, to be fair, it is one, one, one that we've t- I've talked about with people before, and I think it's, it's yeah. really good, and I appreciate that you're asking it. So that might have sounded a little bit like an abrupt ending, and it was. It wasn't actually the end of the conversation, but something happened with the recording. And the good news is there wasn't really anything that was left out other than just the wind-down time where she shared some of the other places you can find her online. So I will share those for her and give her a hearty thank you. Uh, You can find out more about Pastor Steph at pastorsteph.com. And she also has the same moniker is that what you would say uh, she has the same name uh, in instagram and twitter pastor steph if you want to keep up with what she's up to or if you want to learn more about mill city church or hear more about some of the sermons and teaching that they're do- doing it's millcitychurch.com steph thanks so much it was great to have you on the podcast 
uh, pleasure to have this conversation, and I hope we can continue it in the future. Thanks so much.